0: Her husband was a career law enforcement officer, 16 years of the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, reaching the rank of sergeant. He died by suicide. She's here to talk about that, her life now, and the shocking response she's received from the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma. Police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook, Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Calling us from Kansas City, Kansas, Lindsey Doolittle on the phone. Lindsey, thanks so much for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We're going to have a very, very difficult conversation, uh, but a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, Lindsey is going to be telling her story. Her husband, uh, Brett Doolittle, was a career sergeant with the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, and he died by suicide. We're going to talk about that in length. And that's the type of conversation that I'll be honest with you. There's no book written on this. There's no guidelines of what to say, what to do, how to act. And I, like many people, feel very, very uncomfortable. So, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And therefore, like many people, I'll just not say anything. The survivor... Winds up being isolated, and with people withdraw from her and or him. And I, I don't want to be that guy.
1: Yeah, I I would say that that is so true with suicide loss survivors. And if somebody is feeling like they want to reach out but they don't know what they, what to say, is that they don't have to say anything at all. They can just be there for that person. They can just sit with that person, and that means so much to the lost survivor. You know, I made mistakes in the beginning and people around me who care about me, who have been there for me, they've made mistakes on certain things that they've said. And that's okay. You know, but being there is the most important thing. You know, the people that disappear out of your life, that that is so hurtful. And um it, it tends to be something that you just you never forget as a last survivor
0: too we'd say people withdraw and and, and leave you for lack of better words yeah is, is it yeah. understandable why they do or does it feel like it's done maliciously or or doesn't matter because the end result's the same
1: uh, I guess it depends on what is you know what is being said um, you know i've heard some really um hurtful rumors and whispers about me, and and those people have disappeared out of my life. But then there's some really great, amazing people that have, uh, I had in my life prior to my husband that, that disappeared out of my life, and I believe it's just because they just don't know what to say.
0: Like I said, there's, there's no book written on what to say, what to do, but you're an, an art teacher, and you actually wrote a book about this.
1: Yes, I'm um, an elementary art school teacher, a public school teacher. And after my um, husband died, I looked for books for um, children on suicide loss because I have nieces and nephews. And my elementary art students, they all knew Officer Doolittle because he ate lunch with me at the elementary school, and they wanted to know what happened to my husband after he died. And, um, I wanted some kind of book to help explain it, but there there was none. So um, I I actually wrote the book in a panic one night. I woke up around midnight and wrote it in less than twenty minutes. And I self published. And um, the, the illustrations um, they are done by suicide loss survivors from my support group. Um, because I've always said that this this story is. Uh, bigger than just my story and I wanted to show kids that um, to not be ashamed and that uh, this happens to way more people out there than we would think that they're not alone.
0: Cer- like, they're certainly not alone everyone I know to some degree or another, others impacted now whether it be a direct family member or a distant family member or someone they know and in the law enforcement community it, it's been a problem for a very very long time Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, I had a guest on the show recently, Dr. Robert Douglas, uh, who studies police suicides, and he said the first major commission study about this problem was in the 1930s in New York City, because it was a huge problem back then, and it was a problem in the 80s. And uh, when we had what I later found out to be suicides when I was on the job... A lot of times we, it was term, termed an accidental discharge, uh, an accidental gunshot, or some other, and we never knew until later on, it was always kept hush, hush, and quiet, quiet. So it, yeah. it's been a problem for a long time, and it's a problem we need to talk about, and, and I'm so grateful that you're telling me story. You, you took time, you wrote a book, you published a book. Where can people get more information about that book? It's
1: on Amazon. Um, it's on Lulu. Um, and it's a, It's also um, in the Vincent van Gogh Library in Amsterdam. I didn't even know that they had a, a library out there. They had reached out to me and asked if they could put the book on permanent display in the Vincent van Gogh Library. This is a place where he once worked and lived, and Vincent van Gogh, he died by suicide. Um, you know, I, I wrote the book um, just by going off the curriculum uh, because Vincent Van Gogh is somebody who we teach in the, the classroom. We hold up these beautiful artworks as teachers to our students, but we're really not explaining uh, in depth about these artworks. We're being really just kind of topical with them. You know, here's Starry Night. We're showing this beautiful picture of Starry Night, but we're not saying where he was when he painted it or why he painted it. You know, we show this beautiful artwork um, also of Vincent van Gogh, um, his self-portrait, and it's after he's, he's cut off his ear. It's when he's got the bandage on his head after he's cut off his ear, but we're not telling the kids why he's cut off his ear. And so my book helps explain um, a suicide loss to children in a general way.
0: Did you have a lot of children through your school asking you about where was your husband?
1: The kids wanted to know where I had been for a long time um, because I took off for over a month. Um, I wasn't able to go back. I didn't think I would be able to go back. I thought I was going to be way too scary for the kids. But um, I was able to come back to school the following school year, and they all wanted to know, you know, what happened to him, and, uh, and some of the kids were making up some stories that he had died in the, the line of duty, he had died in the fire, and none of it was true. And I wanted to have this book where it would be open and honest, and and that they what they would know and it wasn't going to be swept
0: under the rug. Sweeping under the rug doesn't do any good and it certainly doesn't do anything to raise awareness or prevent more of these and uh, I think that we all have an obligation to each other to do that. The old saying we had is in Baltimore where I was a police is when an officer needed assistance was in trouble was a life of that situation it was called a signal 13. And when a signal 13 was called the citywide dispatcher tone would go across all nine districts and everyone would know and we would go through anything, anything to get there. Didn't matter gunfire, fire, didn't matter what it was. We would go there no matter what the risk because that officer's life was at stake. And I think we need to get some of that attitude and mentality of talking to each other. Not depending on departments, not depending on uh, peer support groups which are important and great or EAP or anybody else. We need to start having these conversations ourselves and checking with each other, asking because a lot of people don't give up information that they're not doing okay and we need to to find out, are you okay? Is something going on? Uh, And let them know, hey, things weren't always good for me. I went through troubled times and and here's how I got through them. We are talking with Lindsay Doolittle. We'll be talking about Her career law enforcement husband, Brett Doolittle, who died by suicide. A very, very difficult conversation to have. Uh, We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. What is the Haunting or Not podcast? It's a free podcast that takes a different approach to ghost stories, hauntings, and cases of demonic forces. Husband and wife podcast hosts mix comedy, facts, and a healthy dose of police evidence skepticism to help you decide. Are these hauntings or not? Helping you decide what's real and what is fake or an overhyped exaggeration. From world-famous cases to lesser-known reports, they talk about them all in the Haunting or Not podcast, available for free on most podcast platforms. Or do a Google search for "haunting or not podcast. I have some exciting news to share with you. You are going to love my Your Diet Do-Over Do-It-Yourself course on HarmonyWithFood.com, which means you could do everything at your own pace. I put my heart and soul into this course. Have you been on every diet there is only to gain the weight back? If your relationship with food is, well, not that good, you should purchase the Your Diet Do-Over course. Go over to HarmonyWithFood.com. Click the Your Diet Do-Over tab and get started today. Joined on the phone with special guest Lindsay Doolittle calling us from Kansas City, Kansas area. Lindsay is an elementary school arts teacher, and her husband, Brett Doolittle, was a 16-year career law enforcement officer with the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department uh, at the rank of Sergeant he died by suicide. And before we get into the conversation about that and what happened and where you're at now and what's taken to get there, one of our conversations over the phone, preparing for this interview, I've been trained, and I think, like many, many people, it uh, became ingrained in our vernacular that we'd use a term, the phrase, committed suicide. And I had no idea and never thought about it because it's just what we ever always said how that's not cold, that's a problem. And you direct me that the terminology we should use is a phrase something along the lines of died by suicide. Am I correct?
1: Yes, just trying to change the vernacular and the term committed suicide holds that negative connotation that somebody has committed a sin or committed a crime. So just trying to change the language and to um, try to promote forward thinking with suicide awareness and so guide um, by suicide, you know, and when people say committed suicide, I I don't take offense to it. I know that this is a learning process, but my mom is still learning, you know, so it's, it's okay. It's, you know, it's just, it's a way of promoting forward thinking on this.
0: One of our good friends, Karen Solomon from Blue Help, uh, we've had a show a couple times, and uh, their big mission is to uh, honor, educate, and uh, try to prevent law enforcement suicide. And one of the things that she always said, and it's also something I never really thought about, it's it's not when someone dies in the line of duty, that's one thing. When someone dies by suicide, as a result of their service. And there's a lot of things that go into this, that one of the things we do is we tend to say, oh, it's a horrible shame, it's a tragedy when someone's killed in land of duty. But when they die by suicide, there's almost an anger, and like I said, a blaming. Uh, And and we lose sight of, it's it's not so much how they died that matters, it's how they lived, it's their service, what they did beforehand. If they died by a heart attack in a patrol car, it's tragic. But it's no more or no less tragic than if this officer dies by suicide, that we need to change the vernacular, for lack of better words. And I like the way you put that. Not just the mindset about how we discuss these things, but also how we look at them and say, what can I do to make a difference? And the first thing I'm trying to do personally, and I've had a huge change in my mindset about this as I've gotten older is that I want to honor their service, and I want to honor their commitment, and I want to try to take the lessons that we learn from their deaths and apply that so that we can prevent that from happening to someone else.
1: You know, I, I couldn't really tell you anything about my husband's service. I don't know much about that. You know, he kept work at work, and when he was at home, he was at home.
0: Well, that's not unusual. My, my first wife knew almost nothing I went through until it was really, really bad, and, and, and it was too late.
1: Yeah. Um, and Brett was part of the silent epidemic of um, with, with suicide. Um, I didn't know anything that was going on with him inside. I knew that there was some problems. I just didn't know it was suicide-related. Um, and neither did the department. Um, I mean, they, they saw something different. He kept everything very compartmentalized. But yes, I, I do think what adds to the stigma is the failure to acknowledge the death of someone by suicide. And I think that one thing that we do need to acknowledge is that suicide is a very different death, that um, somebody who dies in the line of duty or from maybe a physical illness it is, it's so different because mourners are met with usually compassion and sympathy, where a suicide loss survivor is met with judgment and blame and exclusion, um, and the person who murdered our loved one was our loved one. So, it, it is a, it's a different kind of death, and I'm not saying that it's more worse than somebody else's death. You know, I'm not trying to take away anybody's grief. I'm just saying it's a, a
0: different kind of death. Yeah, and I don't like the whole comparing thing. And I, I had to give up on that. Uh, I, I fell like into a trap of comparing my line of duty injuries the end of my career to other people's line of duty injuries that ended theirs, and theirs seemed to be more severe. And then I felt guilty as if something I did was wrong. And really, it, it's not fair scenario to them or me. So I've I've learned to stop doing that. And I think it's the same with, and I'm venturing a guess here, I would think it's the same when we talk about those who died in letter duty and those who died by suicide, uh, in law enforcement in particular. And when I say law enforcement, by the way, folks, it's not just a a police officer problem. It's corrections officers, it's dispatchers, it's firefighters, it's EMTs, and it's also our military veterans. Uh, That's a huge segment of the United States population. And it's been a huge problem for a very, very long time one that we can no longer ignore. One of the things that you mentioned is that the survivor, the surviving spouse in a suicide scenario or death by suicide case is often shunned and blamed. Was that the case with you?
1: Definitely. There is a growing problem of law enforcement officer widows of suicide who are being blamed and dismissed by their husband's department's and my story is no different. I found out the very night that I found my husband um, after he had died. I I found out that suicide is very different. And um, you know, I was after I called 911. When um, the first officer showed up, you know, I'm on my hands and my knees and I'm screaming for help, and I'm also gagging and vomiting, and no officer is there to console me. No officer is there to help me. I, I was told two things that night by the police department. Um, that I was told to sit on my couch, that I wasn't allowed to move, um, and the second thing was that they wanted me to, um, to get permission to... Um, search my home even though it didn't happen in my home it happened in the garage but they needed to have me sign a consent to search form uh, that granted them permission to search my home so they asked me if I would sign the um, permission to search uh, the consent and which I you know I I signed but those are the only two things that were said to me that night when my, my husband died, and from there, it just got even worse. Um, uh, 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 let's see. The next thing that happened after that was um, the, the liaisons from the police department, you know, they came over to um, my parents' house where I was staying after I got out of the hospital, because I went into the hospital that night, and um, but when I finally got to... Go to my parents' house. Um, they came over and told me, like the second day after Brett had died, that the detectives were going to come over, and they were going to take my statement. And they had to rule out that it wasn't um, a, a homicide. Right?
0: Yeah, that's and, that's normal. That uh, you know, we treat every in, in Baltimore, we treated every unnatural death as a homicide first until the evidence proved otherwise.
1: But you know, my question is. Why was I the only one that was interviewed? Not his family, not his best friend, nobody from the department. It was only me, his wife, that was interviewed. And um, the liaisons told me that it was not going to be a warm and fuzzy conversation, and they were right. Because when the detectives came, there they were. There was no words of comfort. There was no "I'm so sorry for your loss, ma'am." I mean, these are the same detectives that were in the same police department with my husband. Right. You know, we have to live where where you work as a police officer. So um, these detectives worked with my husband, and you know, they took my statement and. Um, and after that, you know, was the funeral, and at the funeral, um, even though Brett didn't want a funeral, um, uh, you know, I wanted to have a funeral for everyone. Uh, even his mother didn't want to have
0: the funeral with the police officer. And I, I believe that's probably not uncommon either. With a short break, I promise you, we're going to come back to our conversation with Lindsay Doolittle involving the death by suicide of her husband, uh, Sergeant Brett Doolittle from Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, the aftermath, of what she went through, and where she's at now. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a product actually a line of products that have changed my life dramatically. Juice Plus health products. I know many of you like me are skeptical about claims made for these nutritional supplements. However, these Juice Plus products have made a world of difference for me. The simplest, cheapest, least expensive product they have as a result of taking it, a chewable berry flavored product I've had full night's sleep every night and zero leg cramps. I know, doesn't seem like a lot, but getting good night's sleep and having a stable mood helps me quite a bit. You can get more details about Juice Plus products at letpops.com. That's letpops.com. And for those of you looking for a great business opportunity, check out letpops.com.
1: Discover the exciting world of podcasts at hefepods.com. From captivating stories to life advice and much more. There's a podcast for every interest and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish. Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language. Find the best podcasts at chefepods.com.
0: conversation with Lindsay Doolittle just to recap Lindsay's surviving spouse her husband Brett Doolittle sergeant with the Kansas City Kansas Police Department died by suicide uh, 16 years on the job you know part of me Lindsay wants to defend the police department and, and I always you know want to because I have a lot of loyalty even though it's not my department um, and one of the worst things I ever had to do in police work was death certifications, and one of the hardest things to do, I was never a homicide detective, so i didn 't do in depth interviews with people. Uh, what is a known homicide when we had bad shootings and stuff? Yes, we did that, and later turned into homicides and and the, unfortunately the, the number one rule uh, in homicides the the person most likely to have committed the homicide is someone very close to them. And the person last saw them is oftentimes where you start your investigation until the evidence proves otherwise. Uh, And and evidently, that became the case with you. But there's really no way that I know of to have that kind of interview and and have, like you said, you were warned. They weren't going to be soft and fuzzy about it, and they weren't. No, and, you
1: know, I I wanted to also say um, police are trained and i think we were talking about this before police aren't trained in suicide investigation and homicide investigation is that what we were, no,
0: talking, what about? We were talking about earlier is that at least in my department when we had any unnatural unexpected death it didn't matter what it was we treated okay. it as a homicide first until okay. it's proven otherwise because you can't go back if you think it's a suicide then it turns out it's a homicide well you can't go back and recreate the crime scene so you work from the worst case scenario first and then you come outwards and you go where the evidence fo- uh, leads you and you follow that uh, until you find the logical conclusion. Uh, and there's many different tests you would do. I'm sure they did with your case and, and not to get into in depth, but like gunshot residue. One of the first tests we would do uh, is we do gunshot residue tests on the hands and arms uh, of the people that were on the scene And when they fire a handgun, there's going to be residue on their hand, their arms, uh, clothing they were wearing. And that's one of the first tools used to exclude people. To fast forward, when they came to their conclusion, you had the funeral. That's where we left off. And you didn't want to. And I, I, I was saying that I've heard quite often in matters of death by suicide that for some reason, people don't want to have the funeral as if there's some sort of shame or embarrassment
1: now his mother didn't want to have a funeral with all the police officers and I wanted to have a funeral for everyone to come and I wanted everybody to to be there and see all of the wonderful things that my husband had done because I didn't think that they knew all of the amazing things that my husband did at home so um I wanted to have that funeral and I wanted to show off his artwork because my husband was an artist and he worked in pencil and charcoal, and he loved porcelain and so I had all of his artworks out. He was a a gardener. He um, was an amazing cook. I'm not the cook and I have a very hard time cooking for myself. I mean, like, he, he 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 was the cook in our house, and he did, like, recipes from scratch. And so, I, I mean, I wanted to get up there, and I wanted to speak, and I wanted to tell everybody exactly, you know, who my husband was, but at the same time, I was leaving out a whole lot of other things in that funeral speech about my husband, too. You know, I was trying to pay respect um, to his family who was there, to the officers, and letting them know all the good things, but I also was leaving out a lot of other things that were happening at the house behind closed doors that I, I was way too ashamed to even say um, in front of a, a, a huge. There were so many. There were so many people there. There was. I think they said there was like 500 people there. There was a sea of blue, and um, you know I wasn't ready to talk about all of the things that were happening in our household about what was going on, but I was trying to let them know about all of the really great things about that. And, and that's admirable. Out. It, it, yeah. A lot of
0: people I don't think can do that. One of the things that is very common, it's actually when I say one thing; is there's three things that are very common, they call the triad. What I've read, I'm no expert, uh, when you got first responder or law enforcement related suicide. Uh, and three things. Number one, uh, being some degree of post-traumatic stress, that they say it is a huge factor in the vast majority of these cases. And with that, you wind up having emotional, relationship problems. You wind up having anger issue problems, irritability problems, uh, substance abuse problems are very, very common with that. Uh, The second thing that happens quite often, and by the way, with that post-traumatic stress, you wind up having an isolation problem with your spouses and and your family members. Then you compound that with substance abuse issues, which creates its own set of horrible circumstances for relationships. Then you have two other factors that come in to play, and they are often combined hand in hand, and those are uh, disciplinary problems at work. And relationship problems at home, failing marriages, failing relationships, arguing, all those things. Without going to great details, is that what you were referring to was, was happening at home?
1: There is so much. Um, I don't know if our interview will even touch what was going on.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that part on an, in, a, in a subsequent interview because uh, I think it's going to take a little bit of time and a bit of, a little bit of trust and development between you and me. I, I don't distrust you, but I'm some guy on the phone you never met. So I think we get to stage two somewhere down the road. You might be more comfortable talking about that. So you discovered your husband. He had, uh, com- he, he died by suicide, and, and I'm pardon me for my stumbling over terms like that. I, I found my first suicide when I was about 18 years old. I was working as a taxi cab driver in North Virginia Beach, Virginia, and a woman came to the airport, and her husband didn't pick her up. He was, she was, very, he was very late, so I, I drove her to her house, and his car was in the driveway, and she asked me to help bring the suitcases in, and, and immediately you could tell something was very, very wrong. And he was a retired uh, military officer, and he had died by suicide involving uh, his gun. And th- there's nothing before that that could have prepared me for what I was going to see. And this was a man I didn't know. It's a man I never met. Uh, but immediately, I wanted to run. I want. I had to talked to the police. So I couldn't leave. I wanted to run and just get as far away from there as possible. I-, I can only begin to imagine how difficult it was for you, because you can't run away from that.
1: No, it's something that I think about every day and I've been diagnosed with PTSD and I work through it. I work with a therapist and I have a support group that has been amazing, but I will say that the support that I I was looking for was from the family in blue and, um, you know, back when we were talking about the panel... I, I noticed right when I got to the funeral um, some things that were said to me by officers. And not all, but there was a noticeable amount of officers that not only skipped over me in line when paying their respects, but they glared at me too. And that hurt me so much.
0: They were and, angry and they, they misplaced their anger and blamed you. Yeah. We were talking about... With- Lindsey Doolittle. Trust me, you don't want to miss the rest of the conversation. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email J at letradio.com That's jay at letradio.com I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Lindsay Doolittle, calling us from Kansas City, Kansas, talking about the death by suicide of her husband, Brett Doolittle, uh, Sergeant with the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department. Before we went the break, Lindsay, you were talking about the funeral and, and some of the officers at the funeral uh, obviously were very angry at you. They, they skipped over you, wouldn't talk to you, were glaring at you. Is there anything else that was said?
1: I mean, the very first officer that I saw at the funeral, I asked them if they had worked with my husband, and that officer who was looking at our uh, wedding album, and he turned and he said, yeah, I worked with your husband. I was with him for 16 years in the department, and I had no idea he was even married, and you know, we all have marital problems, and then he walked away from me. And I just wanted to curl up into a ball. I I didn't even want to be at my own husband's funeral. I didn't want to be there in the first place. But I mean, like, I really wanted to go and I wanted to hide. And I mean, it was just adding—it was just adding unnecessary stress and unnecessary grief. Um, and when people were skipping over me, I just—I didn't understand what was going on. And then when I, after the funeral, when I got. The police report and I got the autopsy report, and I read how both of those um, those official reports blamed my marriage. I was devastated. I I feel that sometimes the blame has swallowed me up more than my husband's death. I feel like I haven't been able to even grieve my husband's death, and the way that a widow should be able to grieve. I don't even know if there is a right way, but I don't feel like it's it's been able to happen because I've been swallowed up by the blame, and it's trumped everything in this whole process. And the reason I speak out and the reason I'm speaking to you, Jay, is because I don't want it to happen to the next LEO widow of suicide. Right. I want them to have better. I don't want them to have what I had. Uh, that's the only reason that I speak up because I don't know what goes on. I don't know why. Well, I want to ask you, Jay, why do you think that officers do that? Why do they do that to the widow? I,
0: I don't know. I, and and I, I gave up trying to answer those questions because obviously these are not logical answers and there's a thought process that happens I remember being a rookie policeman uh, many 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 years ago I hate to admit that and I was very upset and distraught about something that horrific that happened and I'll be honest I don't remember what it was because there's there's so many over the years and an old time officer said to me listen he said you can't try to make sense out of things that are not sensible because you'll drive yourself insane Uh, what I do accept is this that Uh, And studies have shown, for about 30% of our first responders, and I think the number's higher, but we are just still with 30% are walking around with some degree of post-traumatic stress. Now, when you take that and you add into the post-traumatic stress and all that comes along with it, failing marriages, failing relationships, getting into problems at work, drinking too much, the shame, the guilt, all those things that come along, and a loss of feeling of being able to control yourself, I think those are the main reasons why this happens. And to, to try to fix blame other than that, I don't think helps anybody. Uh, unless a person writes a note and says, this is, this is going to be why I'm doing it. Well, I, don't, I, I don't think it really matters.
1: Well, I have um, one big thing that I wanted to say was I reached out to my husband's chief only a few months after he had died, and I reached out to him and wrote him this 15-page letter because after reading that autopsy report and that official report, I I was so devastated, and I wrote in that letter to him um, that my husband, in his suicide letter, he blamed the job for his death. He wrote that he was unhappy with himself and that it had absolutely nothing to do with me, his wife, but it was because of dumb luck dropping out of art college and that he wound up as a police officer and he feels like the job had changed him into something horrible Um, and that it was always me that kept him going. So he blamed the job. And then the police department blamed our marriage, but I wrote to the chief and said, I want you to know that I don't blame anyone. I know that my husband was suffering from a mental condition called depression, Uh and his problems started way before he was even born. I found out things about my husband that I wasn't privy to that happened way before our... I even knew Brett. I found out that he had been molested by um, a stepfather, stepfather that I didn't even know about. He kept hidden in secret. I mean, there is problems that he had way before me. And, uh, I mean, I reached out to him and what I got in return from the chief was nothing. He ignored me. And then I reached out to him again and he ignored me again.
0: Well, I want to say this. So, Shame on him. I, I've, I've read recent reports where Spouses in your position where they've had loved ones who died by suicide and they've found a lot of support and they, they made available for them uh, peer support counselors that were part of the, the police department team because they consider considered to be part of the family and they are part of the family. And for that to happen, yeah, that's disgraceful. It's disgraceful that, that that happened to you.
1: I I want to thank you for having me on because a lot of people think that because I speak out. They think I'm against police departments, and that's not true. I, I want to work with police departments because I just don't want this to happen to somebody else because it's not just me that it happens to. There's so many of us that it happens to, and it builds up so much resentment, so much anger, and so much hurt. And then we feel like we can't trust our family in blue anymore, and, and we just lose all hope in our family in blue.
0: And I'm, and I'm, I'm, sorry I, I that you're getting upset, and I, I, I hate to hear that you feel that way, but you're, enti- you're, you're allowed to feel that way, and that's the, the sad truth is that happens far more often than we or anyone wants to admit, and that's part of the problem, and that's part of the reason why there's so much stigma about officers reaching out to get help, or for their their families and spouses to reach out and make them let people know they need help. There, there's a stigma, and it's. It's kept hush-hush and swept under the rug by so many police administrators. And and I, for one, have just had it with it, because that doesn't help. That doesn't help solve the problem.
1: I will always keep my door open for the chief and the department. And I've said it in all of my interviews and every speech that I've given. I always keep my door open. I do have hope one day that it will turn around. I do have hope, and when I see other departments that are embracing the lost survivors, I would just say to anybody that's out there that has a department that has a suicide and they don't know what to do for the lost survivors, for the LEO widows, for the families, don't wait for them to come to you. It is so hard as the widow you can reach out to them even if you don't know what to say you can be there for them i mean i think that some people are waiting for the widows to reach out to them they shouldn't have to reach
0: out to ask for help yeah
1: they shouldn't have to in
0: in, in a line of duty death such scenario that's not the case there's someone there immediately and, and we don't wait for them to ask for help and it shouldn't be that way with suicide either Uh, And it should be treated as a byproduct of of the tremendous stress and pressure and and violence that our first responders encounter and endure every day. And unfortunately for for many people, it becomes too much. uh, And some of those uh, die early as a result of, of depression and suicide. And by the way, the chief of that police department, I'm not going to call him out, but it's time to change your posture. And we we go, we make a big deal out of being transparent for the community. Well, let's have the same transparency for our own family of blue. And that needs to happen nationwide, not just in the agency where your husband served, but nationwide. Before we close, we're running out of time. I want you to tell people one more time where they get your book and more information.
1: I have a website. It's called Above the Rug, because I don't sweep anything under the rug. And so uh, Above the Rug, and that's where my you can read more about my book, um, and my book is on Amazon.
0: And what's the name of the book so, again, one more time?
1: It's called Goodnight, Mr. Vincent Van Gogh.
0: Lindsay Doolittle, thank you so very much for your courage coming on the Law Enforcement Show and talking about this, and we'll certainly have you back in the future.
1: Thank you so
0: much, Jay. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.